If you were not here last week, and no, I beg your pardon. If you were, yes, last week. Hello. If you were not here last week and you consider yourself a regular attender here at Faith and part of the ministry and all that goes with that, I would strongly encourage you to obtain that message that is uh, easily obtainable online. You can either listen to it streamed or you can burn yourself a CD or even make it into an MP3 and listen to it on your iPhone or whatever your MP3 player of choice is. Because this is, well was, going to be the conclusion to last week's message. As it turns out, yeah, exactly. So next week will be the conclusion to last week's message. So, you know, they're kind of uh, attached to each other, so to speak. And again, it would just be uh, very helpful, I think, if you had the whole message in context of the whole. So anyway, um, two weeks ago, as we rolled out the we're moving to 750, Pastor Brent was talking about what this would mean to each of us faithers in being a part of seeing this come about, of being participants in seeing that happen. And under the three-phased plan that Pastor Brent talked about, which is pray, serve, and reach, everyone has a role. Everyone has to have a role. Everyone must take part in that role. And being a true Christ follower means that, to use Paul's analogy of the gardener, that several individuals or a bunch of individuals in any congregation of Christ's church are going to be sowers, those who sow seeds. And then another group within that church are going to be those who come along and maybe till the soil to expand his uh, analogy a bit more. And some are going to come along and be the ones who are responsible for watering. It takes everybody. But at the end of the day, Paul emphasizes, and I want to emphasize, that at the end of it all, in all of our efforts, God is the one who gives the increase. Now, we'll park that for a bit. Because the Bible's pinnacle tenet of the Christian message is that salvation is a free gift, unfortunately, millions of people have come to understand that for the Christian, making it to heaven is solely, you got to, from this point on and this, you got to listen to me carefully. And don't jump to conclusions until we get to the end. So let me start that again so that you're with me. Because the Bible's pinnacle tenet of the Christian message is that salvation is a free gift. Millions of people have come to understand that for the Christian, making it to heaven is solely and purely by God's sovereign action on behalf of mankind. So the only thing that anyone needs to do in light of that is to receive it. Going back centuries, this was basically codified in what I would call the banner of the Reformation, which said, solo gratia, solo fide, solo scriptura. Solely by grace, solely by faith, solely by scripture. And so we Christians pride ourselves on the fact that unlike every other religious belief system in history, only Christianity offers eternity in heaven as an unmerited, unearned gift. A verse that just may very well be the most memorized verse by Christ followers right under John 3.16 
is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And rightly do we cling to the wonder of that kind of generous truth and unspeakable gift because it is in God's Word, which is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. And so we know absolutely that it is true. There's no question about that. And so we love Paul's words to the Ephesian Christians. But then he buttresses them to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 3, after a some tedious, rather tedious explanation of this whole idea of salvation and the role of the law and of works and doing and all of that, he says this, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. And so again, we hold to, we cling to, and we vehemently will argue that salvation is a gift and it cannot be earned, which again is true. But, ah, the buts. What happens too often is that living out of salvation as a gift, which can't be earned, which again is true, gets pushed to an untrue extreme. It gets pushed to an untrue application. And that is what I call heresy. Heresy, and this is just my own personal working definition, is something that is true, but it's taken to an untrue extreme. And that's why heresy is dangerous. Because you go, well, salvation by grace through faith, it's you know, not of war. Yeah, I mean, that's all true. It is true. But that can be taken, as you're going to see, and it can be pushed to an untrue extreme. So consider now the arena of what in theology is called orthopraxy. Not orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is the daily practice of our beliefs. If you will, it is the daily practice of our orthodoxy, which is right doctrine. Orthopraxy is right living. And this is where salvation by grace through faith alone appears to crumble. And appears there is the operative word. Hopefully you're going to see what I mean. So back now to Pastor Brent's mind-blowing, amazing rollout of the We're Moving campaign. A little inside joke there. A healthy church grows. A growing church moves. And a moving church needs the participation and the use of the gifts and the talents and the abilities of everybody who is part of that local community of believers. Which means work. A collection of all the works of the participants are needed in order to pull that off and do what we are responsible for. Now, working... To get a place in heaven, we've already declared that to be illegitimate. That is not the message of salvation by grace through faith. But the things that we do that we would call works 
We do not to earn a place in heaven, but because we have been given a place in heaven. And what I want to emphasize this morning is that for all of our evangelical belly aching, all of our evangelical complaining and finger pointing at they, them, and those, and even the ubiquitous evildoers that we call culture, the truth is that throughout the continuum of church history, the church's greatest enemy has not been necessarily they, them, and those, or even culture. In the words of the great theologian Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Consider the Apostle Paul's opening salvo to the believers at Corinth begins only ten verses into chapter one of that book. This is what we read, verses ten and eleven. The Apostle Paul says, Now I exhort you, remember he is writing to the Corinthian church. I exhort you. And that word exhort there can be translated variously. It has a, 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 a semantic range of having the connotations of being, being very coddling and encouraging and kind of warm and fuzzy. But it all goes all the way to the other end where it is bold, flat out, kind of eh, between the eyes, confrontation in a means of encouraging you to do what's right or to change something. That's the way Paul uses it here. Now, I exert you, calling you out, Corinthian believers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but rather that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren... Not by rumor, not by hearsay, not by my casual insipid observance, but rather by Chloe's people. I wonder if Chloe's people were really saying, thank you, Paul. Really appreciate that one. (laughs) I've been informed by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now, boy, the way he was leading up to that, you'd think something really, you know, ghastly was going to be, you know, coming out. There's quarrels among you. To Paul, that's a huge deal. The idea of church unity, of brothers and sisters, but extending grace and mercy, but that's going to be more next week. All of that, that is vitally important to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, which means it is God speaking and saying, there's quarrels among you. You're the church for crying out loud. Paraphrasing what Paul said, we've met the enemy, Church of Corinth, and it's us. Then in chapter 5, same book, Paul gets a little more specific and he says something honestly that is truly startling. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's actually reported, so somebody's, somebody's ratting out the church, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. The word there is porneia. There's porneia among you, and porneia, again, broadly translated immorality, but it has a foci of sexuality, meaning some kind of perversion. 
There is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind, as it doesn't even exist among the ta-ethne. The ta-ethne is usually translated Gentiles, but it really means the nations, meaning every other people group on the face of the earth except for the Jehovah-loving people of Israel. And he says, the sin that is, that is, is, is known in your church and is just kind of lived with and sloughed off and what have you isn't even the kinds of sins that are named among the abject pagans. This is what was going on in Corinth. Hmm. And by the time Paul gets to chapter 11, which is about the Lord's Supper, or chapter, yeah, chapter 11, which is about the Lord's Supper, he gives then sober warnings to Christians partaking of the Lord's Supper while being committed to sinful choices. Being committed to sinful choices. Well, a broad description for such behavior, if we're even talking about Christians, is Christian immaturity. Well, (laughs) brother, I'm not sure what you're so worked up about, Paul. Because, heck, by golly, you know what? Salvation, as you've said, is by grace alone. And I, as heck fire, ain't going to be boasting about my works, so you don't need to worry about that. Hallelujah, I am saved. Want to hear Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again, Paul? So what's at the core of this phenomenon if it's not an arrested development in the lives of Christ followers? What is this absence of growing in the practice in the working out of, in the application of, in living in light of love, mercy, and the grace of Christ, if it isn't Christian immaturity. Can I suggest, and this is only my personal opinion, that one of the reasons Jesus made the Lord's Supper a perpetual observance and then brings it up where he does in the letter to the church at Corinth is to remind each one of his followers just what their, just what our forgiveness cost him. Just what the measure of his love for me means. And why is that? Is it so that the the believers at Corinth could live unaffected? So that they could go on with their lives, with their orthopraxy unchanged? so that they could have the status quo and maintain it, almost with the pride and boasting, towards those in their fellowship with whom whatever their offense is against them doesn't amount to a speck compared to their own offenses against an almighty God. And yet he has forgiven them and continues to love them in spite of themselves over and over and over again. Which means the Lord's table is supposed to help shape our orthopraxy. That's the way we actually live. Being reminded just how much grace and mercy and forgiveness and love has been lavished on us. So that we may deal more graciously. So that we may live more mercifully, more lovingly, and more forgiving with each other. These are all the things that we Christians pay lip service to. 
Paul said, you Corinthians need to start living what you say you believe. Because I can't tell the difference between you and the Gentiles, which shows me what you really believe. Many years ago, about, oh my goodness, probably close to 25 years ago, one of the patriarchs of what is now this church, when it was only a bitty church of a relative handful of people meeting out in the middle of nowhere on the Rice Rips Road next to the Hosea Strawberry Farm, Alan Stanford was one of the elders when I came on board. And Alan really became one of the pillars and the stabilities of this church in its first decade. And he said to me one day, he said, you will not always live what you believe, but you will always believe what you live. So, all right, what are you saying here, Pastor? Because I'm kind of hearing you teetering up to this line of something that's starting to smack a little bit of legalism. You're starting to sound like we aren't really saved solely by grace through faith. No, 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 no. Paul says we are. And his words are inspired by God. But as we know from Paul's other letter to 2 Timothy, verse 3, 16, chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture, all Scripture, which is why we let the Bible interpret the Bible as a whole, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And because all Scripture is inspired, it cannot be contradictory to other Scriptures. So Paul, in Romans and Galatians, and basically, honestly, most of his epistles focus then on the all-important doctrine of salvation and emphasizes what is called in theology the ordo salutis. That is the order of salvation. Meaning Paul's going to answer for us which comes first, the chicken or the egg. In a theological context or in a biblical context, it means which comes first, justification, as it's called, or sanctification. That is to say, are we saved first and then we are progressively but certainly made better and better? Or are we made progressively better and better and then we are saved? Evangelicalism, that's us, has one particular answer. And then there are many other churches that wear the name of Christ that have another answer. Well, Paul stresses that one's salvation is dependent on one being perfect in all ways. Not being relatively perfect, not being perfect by comparison to anybody else, but must actually have and bear and wear and be the very perfect perfection of God himself. But if we believe in the doctrine of original sin, there is no one who ever can be. And so God provides that perfection. He provides that, we could call it, the true holiness in Christ. And He declares, He simply says, I, God with my authority, am declaring you, the sinner, to be truly as perfect 
in every way as God himself is. That is called justification. And those who believe God are saved. That's called faith. So when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus saying, by grace you have been saved through faith, that is what he is talking about. And when he writes to Titus later on, another person he writes a letter to in the Bible, that says it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercies he saved us. That is what he is talking about. No one is able to merit or earn eternal life in heaven by their own Efforts. Again, this is what evangelicals defend vigorously, and thus we should. But now enter the controversy and the supposed contradiction with what the Apostle James writes versus what Paul writes. James chapter 2. Are you willing to recognize, he's speaking to usans, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellows, that faith without works, is useless? Huh? Wait, what? And then, in the next just couple of of verses, he uses Abraham from the Old Testament as an example. Concluding, so you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we go, hmm, that's a problem. But Paul, again, yet with respect to the promise of God... In Romans chapter 4, verse 20, talks about Abraham, the same one James just talked about. And he says, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, because of that faith, it was also credited, declared by God to Abraham about Abraham, that he himself bore the very righteousness of God, paraphrasing Paul's words. So amazingly, Paul uses Abraham as an Old Testament example of how the promise of salvation to all people, and not just the Jews, comes by faith alone. And yet, ironically, while Paul uses Abraham as the quintessential Old Testament example of salvation by faith alone, stating that no one is saved by works, Abraham is then used, the exact same situations, is used by another author, the author of Hebrews, who is unknown, as being the quintessential Old Testament example of someone being saved by faith and works. Or so it seems. So I'm hearing contradiction here. Let's take a look at it. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he is called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and fellow heirs of the same promise. By faith, Abraham obeyed going. By faith. He obeyed going. He didn't just say, wow, that's spectacular. Thank you, Jehovah. Oh, you made my day, my week. Actually, you made my life. Yep, I believe. But I'm happy to be right where I am. There's no place like home. No, Abraham's faith 
compelled him to action, meaning works of goodness, of righteousness. And James gets it. And this is why he notes, James 2, verse 19, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, meaning completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, or counted to him, or credited to him, as being as righteous as God is. And he was called the friend of God. So you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he goes on to mention another Old Testament example of faith with works, the person Rahab, who putting her own life in grave danger... By your faith in Jehovah, let the Jewish spies, the Israelite spies, let them, uh, let them get away safely from Jericho. Now, let's look at what James writes further. Verse 14, chapter 2. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Ah, so you see, the quandary seems real. Is it enough to say, God, I believe? Well, if we are justified by faith alone, as Paul is presumed declaring, then apparently yes. And so it is, as some fundamentalists like to say, just before giving an invitation or an altar call for salvation, hoping to increase I guess the response perhaps to that altar call, emphasizing, look, the gift of salvation is absolutely free. All you got to do is believe. It is faith plus nothing. Faith plus nothing. So anybody who wants to be saved today, go and raise your hand. Man, I haven't been in church in 25 years of my life, and I'm only here under duress, but everybody's head's down, their eyes are closed. What the heck do I got to lose? Sure. I'll take it. Give me that fire insurance policy. Take it with me. And they leave unchanged, unaffected. But I believe. Hmm. And so it seems like it's an open and shut slam dunk that Paul and James cannot be reconciled. They do contradict each other. But is there a way to have both Paul and James be absolutely right without contradicting each other. That, by the way, is called an antinomy, those of you who wanted to know. Two things that seem to be mutually exclusive and contradictory actually aren't. Well, the answer is there is a way for both Paul and James to be both right without contradicting if you keep the ordo salutis in its proper order. That is the order of salvation. So, here it is. Wake up now. Okay. I'm awake. I don't know why I did that. First, we are declared to be perfect, to be holy, to be without blemish on the basis of our faith that God is true to His Word and that He has declared us righteous in Christ. It is a one-time pronouncement. 
by God himself. And it is what secures our place in the Lamb's book of life. Once declared to be perfect, it is done. We will never let the impact of this really try and sink in. We will never be more perfect than the moment God declared us righteous when at first we believed. That sounds to me like faith alone. Well, it does because it is. Again, theologically, this is called justification. Now, part and parcel of justification is an empowering of the Holy Spirit which God uses to enable the one who believes to progressively to progressively live like Jesus, to become more and more like Jesus. It is an ongoing process that continues right to the grave, but it has no bearing on the certainty of one's place in heaven. It does have bearing on one's success in this life. That's why God has granted to us, he says, uh, or Peter says, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's why the Bible speaks, Paul speaks about rewards in heaven. Kind of mysterious. He doesn't say a whole lot about it. We're not talking about salvation. Salvation is guaranteed. But now there is going to be a day of judgment for Christians and we will be judged on the basis of those works. Not about getting into heaven, but about whatever. I don't even know how it plays out because like I said, there's a paucity of information in the scriptures so I'm not going to argue from silence. Theologically, this process is called sanctification. So the ordo salutis is, the order of salvation is justification first, sanctification second. But it's not first and then somewhere along the line sanctification starts. Justification is granted, declared, and sanctification begins immediately where justification has occurred. They are inextricably linked together. This is salvation by grace through faith. This is what Paul was driving home. The actions that follow, the actions, the works that must follow are the signs and the proofs and the evidence that faith is real and salvation has indeed been bestowed. This is what James was driving home. It is justification and then sanctification. But by the then, don't think there is a passage of time there until it begins. It's immediate when justification occurs, but there is an order. Justification. You are declared perfect. Sanctification. Now the process of making you more and more perfect. You cannot have true salvation and not demonstrate growth unto becoming more like Jesus. Because that is the very reason the Holy Spirit has been given to all who believe. 
So we are justified, we are declared worthy for heaven before God, and then the reality of that is manifested by our living in obedience to God's values, God's heart, God's mind, God's pattern for life, which shows that we have, in fact, been declared forgiven, saved, justified by God's grace alone. If justification is real, the works will follow or justification never took place. And whatever you call your faith is not a faith unto eternal life. That is why James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Because faith without works is useless. It is a dead faith. Justification sanctification. If you keep the ordo salutis in the proper order, the order of salvation in the proper order, there's no contradiction from what James is saying and from what Paul is saying. The two go hand in hand. They are inextricably woven together. Does that make sense? Yeah. I had three in the first service. Not, not sure about this one. That was kind of a... Well, all right. (laughs) The Ordo Salutis. Keep that in your back pocket. You never know. You know, you can be there at work, at the water cooler, or wherever you gather. Somebody will start talking about something either obnoxious or annoying, something you don't get to, and they say, what do you think? You can just go, Ordo Salutis, and just walk away. (laughs) And they'll think you were cursing or something, and they'll just leave you alone, so whatever. The Bible does not contradict. And oh, how I emphasize this to our collegians. Just remember again Solomon's words, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Unfortunately, at the university level, there's never or rarely an opportunity for the other one to plead their case. And the one raised in the Christian church runs and hightails it from their faith, seeing it as all a big scam. Not <laughs> the Bible. Hey, I remember that crazy pastor of mine telling me the Bible is an error authoritative, the word of God. This, this, this professor of mine just dismantled the whole inspiration idea and the perfection of it, non-contradiction of it in ten different ways. Yeah, well, let someone, come out, someone else come in and examine him. And that is also just to mention to you parents, Pastor Gary already knows about this, arranging to have a time when I can talk to the new high school graduates who are heading away to have a time to sit with me for uh, just a, well, whatever it takes, to prepare them for what lies ahead in the wonderful atmosphere of godless university. And I certain wouldn't, wouldn't, certainly wouldn't restrict it just to them, but to anyone who might already be there. They'll go, yeah, right, whatever. You're the parents. You can tell them what to do. Oh, you don't know, Mike. That's another sermon. (laughs) Let me have Paul come on up and pray. You just stopped preaching and started meddling, Pastor. Yep, I know how that goes. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, once again, uh, a great sermon that touches uh, our hearts, Lord, and helps us to realize uh, how precious you are, Lord, in our lives. And Lord, I just pray that um, our lives reflect how precious you are in our daily walk with you. And I just pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, that we would be, uh, our steps would be lighter and our and just uh, gladness that we have you as our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.